All right, Inappropriate Earl is back in the house. We've had a lot of comics on, a lot of musicians on lately. But today, I am very excited to have a longtime friend and someone who I literally have not seen in probably 12 years. Uh, he might be the most multi-talented person I've ever had on this podcast. He's a singer songwriter author i might say even a little bit of a comic absolutely please put your hands together for the lovely and talented mr jeffrey mark hi friends what jeffrey it's been way too long i i first met you at the improv what was it 2004 something like that something like that bud friedman sent me over and uh asked me to check you out Actually, that's why I was there. And uh, here we are all these years later. Which is what I love about the world of comedy. It's a so many people, so many stories, so many paths of meeting people and staying in touch and losing touch with people, unfortunately. Different circles. The circle is now complete. We are back. Well, I've been busy since last we got together. Uh, two books were published. I produced a CD of big band music with a singer. I directed an Elvis show at a local casino in the out in the desert. And I've ghostwritten a couple of books. And now I have a brand new book out on Ella Fitzgerald called uh, Ella, Biography of a Legendary Ella Fitzgerald. And you've been busy touring and being in comedy clubs and making commercials and making movies and television shows. You, you've become quite the star. I'm so proud of you. Well, uh, it's been a long road. Uh, you know, I did a show yesterday with a young comic, 24 years old, already been on Conan twice. Uh, here I am, 49, haven't been on Conan once. There's many paths. There are many paths. There are many paths. I got to do the Penite Show once, about 30 days into Jay Leno's uh, tenure. Johnny had just left. And the only reason I could think they booked someone like me was because he was having trouble getting guests because no one wanted to go near Jay the first couple of months. Why is that? Just because he wasn't Johnny? Because he wasn't Johnny, because no one knew how the ratings were going to play out between he and Letterman and what was going to happen. People, people were expecting the worst. The last time there had been a transition, there was a six-month gap between Jack Parr and Johnny. And then there was a whole year and a half gap between Steve Allen and Jack Parr. It was unknown territory. So uh, everyone was leery. No one wanted to get attached to something that might not be, uh, you know how Hollywood is. Well, unfortunately, I do. You know, if they smell it might not be a hit, everybody walks away. If they sniff that you might be a hit, the whole world wants to attach to you like barnacles and suck you dry. <laughs> Because you've seen it all. I'd be yeah, like, I have. I've done this now. This is 45 years of doing this. I've been at this. You can add up the numbers. I've been at this professionally since I'm 15 and as an amateur since I'm eight. Because I don't think you know this about me. I got emancipated at 15. I didn't. I did not. What brought that on? Uh, well, I'll be very honest with you guys because I always tell the truth on camera. Off camera, I may lie once a little. On camera, I always tell the Who truth. Who doesn't? Uh, my father, unfortunately, was an alcoholic and a drug addict and a child abuser. And I was the child, among others. Right. And my mother 
I guess she's mentally ill, but definitely a codependent. And by the time I was 15, they just couldn't have me around anymore. They just couldn't afford to have me in the house. They couldn't afford to have me seeing what was going on. She wasn't going to change anything. She wasn't going to leave him. And she kind of transitioned from being my mother to being his mother. That's where her happiness lie. And I was shipped off at 15 to college and uh, I paid for it. How did you pay for it? Uh, loans, grants, and you work full time. And I got my own apartment. And uh, now, mind you, I was not in Harvard or Yale or Princeton. I was at the University of Arkansas and not the good one in Little Rock. I was at the awful one way up in Fayetteville, up in the Ozarks. Okay. You know, I've started writing my memoirs, and my title of that chapter is Jed and Granny Had Better Writers Than I Did. Right. Because the people there spoke like that. That was the mentality. They were, they were still fighting the Civil War. But it was, not a, it was not a great seat of knowledge. I may have been the only Jew on campus. And uh, not my happiest time. I did get a great deal of show business training there. That I got. Which is funny. You wouldn't think you would get show business training in Arkansas. My friend Larry Luck and Bill went to the same school. And we were both sent east by the same professor. Wonderful. May he rest in peace. Dr. Kernodal, who wrote what was at that time the textbook that all the colleges used for drama students. And he saw the talent. And he did what he could for me while I was there and then helped me to get the hell out of there as soon as I could. So Larry and I both had him to thank for starting our careers. But I had already done professional theater. I'd already made my first movie by that point. And before I was 18, I had uh, done two off-Broadway shows, worked at the Playboy Club. I had been doing stand-up and jazz singing in nightclubs all over New York City. I toured with Summerstock. I'd done children's theater. I was a very ambitious young man. And uh, maybe that's why I like Ella Fitzgerald so much. Our stories are very different, but the similarities. At 15, she was on her own. And her stepfather sexually abused her and physically abused her the same way I was. And for both of us, you know, you make a choice. A lot of people would just fold their tents and go, that's it. I've had an awful life. I can't deal with this. And you overdose or you sit in a recliner or you go off your rocker or slash your wrists or whatever you do. Both Ella and I had to make a decision. Am I going to live or am I going to die? And it's a decision I've had to make over and over again. But at that moment, it's no, I, I have been lucky. I've known since I was two years old what I was going to do. There was never any doubt in my mind that I was headed for show business. My family, no, 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 no. You're going to be a doctor. Right. Uh, doctor, we're going to be so proud of you. Uh, doctor, very, very, very Jewish family. But uh, I knew. I knew exactly where my future was. It's what I was born for. I really, really believe that. I, I think you're born with talents. I think everybody is born with talent. I agree. I think Michael Jordan was born to be a basketball player, the greatest. And you were born to be uh, a comedian. It's, I am. You're brilliant. You are brilliant on stage. 
There are so many comedians out there. Let's talk about you for a second. Let me let me brag about you to our friends out there. Oh, you're too kind. There are so no, I'm, I'm the right kind. Um, there are so many stand-ups out there, and this is my complaint, maybe about stand-up comedians, or it's my how I judge comedians. If you're doing material as a comedian that I could do and get laughs, there's something wrong with your material. I agree. If you're doing material that I've seen on Comedy Central or Leno or anywhere else, if you're doing the same old stuff, you're a hack. I don't think anyone could get away with what you get away with on stage. I don't think anyone else could make what you do funny. You have a specific point of view comedically. You have a specific attitude your what you wear on stage, your sexuality, your your uber masculinity, <laughs> you know. Stop! You're making me confident. <laughs> By the way, I must say, uh, my ex girlfriend Gail is in chat. She says you look lovely. Thank you, Gail. It's nice to hear from you, and it's nice to get a compliment. I appreciate that. At one point, me and Gail were like OJ and Nicole, but we've uh, mended our, we're now great, great friends. I'm glad to hear it. Well, Earl's a good guy. I mean, I, I cannot tell you what kind of boyfriend material he makes, but I can tell you he makes great friend material, and he is my favorite comedian of the young. When I say- Well, I'm not young. Uh, when I say young, I mean younger than I am. Of the younger people I I have I have met out there and watched out there, uh, Earl is my favorite. He makes he never fails to make me laugh. He never fails to surprise me, and I'm always happy I've tuned in. Well, I think I do well with. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, I think even though I'm older, uh, you know, I'm in the worst age range you can be to try and be in this business, which is an older, normal looking white guy. I mean, it either pays to be fat, uh, short and black, or something where it's like, oh, wow, what's this person look like? But I am who I am. Why do you think I wear sparkles? Oh, absolutely. That's when I first met you. That's my look. Uh, and I remember the outfit I had on. Uh, I had a pair of bright yellow Versace <laughs> pants on. And they, I think a Boston Bruins hockey jersey because I wanted to stand out. And you did. But and not did. be gaudy. Like this outfit to me is not gaudy, well, also, but it stands out. Also, I'm dressed because I'm doing a concert in a couple of hours in Glendale. So if you're watching us live on Facebook, if you're in the Glendale, California area at seven o'clock, I'll be at the Glendale Downtown Library Auditorium. And I'm going to be singing, oh, seven or eight songs out of Ella Fitzgerald's canon to the original arrangements, my voice, my style, but her songs and telling some stories and signing some books and answering some questions. So if you want to come out, it's free. Please do. Jeffrey, like you guys know, my musical taste borders on uh, retardation with the <laughs> 80s metal being the primary focus. But Jeffrey is an incredibly talented singer. So uh, it, I do have some fans in Glendale. It's free, you cheap bastards. And pick up. Can they buy the book? Absolutely. So the book is, is the, out. The book is out. I'll have copies with me. It is not free, but I'll be very right. happy to sell it to you. Um, and for those of you who are out of town, uh, where are the best places to buy the book? The usual. I think the easiest place, unless I'm coming to your town to sing or doing a book signing, 
The best place is Amazon.com. And could we, could we talk about the book for just a minute? 100%. Just for a minute. I, I, you know, Earl's show is fun and gaudy and bawdy and dirty and funny and <laughs> exactly. funny and funny. And we're going to get to all of that. So here's my little commercial. It's a wonderful book. It's taken 28 years to put together. It's over 450 pages long. You have over 250 uh, photographs and graphics in it. I have spoken with everybody who ever worked with her who was still alive while I've been writing things. Every song has gone over, every album, every concert, every special. I miss nothing with the work. And then I also bring you the woman. Because we all, everybody in show business, owes Ella Fitzgerald a debt of gratitude. Whether you're African-American or Latino or Asian or Jewish or gay or female, if you're anything except a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, Ella Fitzgerald did something right. to kick open a door for you so you could be in show business. And if you are a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, Me. she raised the bar so that... All right, you want to be in show business? You need to be this good to be on this ride. Right. Okay, you can't be this good anymore. Now you must rise. I think she's an inspiration to everyone. You do the absolute best you can on any given day. Don't give less than your best. Oh, I always tell young comics that uh, even if you're in a room full of three people, you don't know who those three people are. They could help you. Act like you're at a sold-out show. And you have... It's your responsibility, if there's only three people, to make sure those three folks are entertained. Absolutely. Or you're an asshole. Oh, I agree. Because that's why you're there. Those three people don't care if you can't pay your rent. They don't care how the manager of the club treated you. They don't care that your girlfriend wouldn't go down on you last night. They don't. They're there to get entertained by you and lose themselves for... 10 minutes or 20 minutes or an hour. That's your job. You want to do that job? Go be a waiter someplace. If you're going to do that job, do your best. I have, I have very little patience with people in our business who don't try. Do it. Right. Do it. And it's never been easier to make it with the advent of YouTube, online. Like, there's no excuse. There isn't. There isn't. But getting back to me yes, and my book. So I think the best place to get me is Amazon.com. Uh, again, tonight in Glendale. I know I'm going to be doing a show sometime in April or May in Los Angeles. And I'll be appearing again in the desert uh, April 14th. I'll be doing a book signing at Just Fabulous in Palm Springs. April 25th, which is Ella's birthday, I'll be at Germano's in Baltimore. And then April 29th, I'll, I'm so thrilled to be in my hometown. I'll be at the Triad Theater in Manhattan doing a concert, and I can't wait. I just, I'm and so when is thrilled. that? April 29th, okay. at 7 p.m. in Manhattan in a theater, in a real theater. Uh, I get to do a show about Ella, and I'm so pleased, so pleased to be able to do this, to bring Ella's music into the 21st century, to let people be aware that she left the bulk of her money to the Ella Fitzgerald Charitable Foundation, which helps the working poor keep their heads above water. And a portion of some of the things I'm doing is going to the foundation. And uh, there is a deluxe version of the book also. This is a cool story. I'm doing a show at the Grammy Museum with Patty Austin in April. And it just so happens that Universal Music's people are there. And we start talking because I've worked for 
various and sundry of Ella's record labels before. I'm Grammy nominated for working for them. And they let me know that you probably don't know this, Jeff, but all of her major labels are now under one corporate umbrella. We all, we own or distribute everybody. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to put out some of the music into the book? You could hear what I'm talking about. Oh, wow. No one had ever thought to do this. So after months of negotiations, and, the, and even as of today, we're finalizing the CDs, which will be out about the 13th of April. We are having two CDs in the book. One is all studio stuff. One is all live stuff from 1937 or 38 up to 1990. And I've sequenced them exactly the way Ella would have if she were singing them in a concert. And that deluxe edition is also available. Uh, if you buy it now, the CDs will be out in about three weeks. Okay. But they're coming, I promise. And uh, you're going to be blown away because it's all about, it's seven decades of her music, but the best of the best of the best. So I'm really pleased. And when you sing, are you accompanied with like a, a, a piano player? Or? I, will, I will not apologize that I'm singing to tracks. I'm singing live. Right. But I'm singing to tracks because touring becomes too expensive otherwise. And to have different musicians in different cities or have to schlep musicians from, and you can't do these things with just a pianist. You need at least a quartet. These are like Nelson Riddle arrangements. You have to use a group. So I'm singing to full orchestral tracks, in some cases made by the very same people who made them for Ella. Right. So we're bringing you the sounds of her arrangements. We're bringing you the spirit of her music but it's my voice and my style and my way of doing it. So. And what is your style? Like if you were to say you were different than her style-wise, what is that? Well, um, first of all, I'm a man. I sing in a male voice. Yes, you, I, I would say that that would be the biggest difference. The biggest difference, I have no breasts or a vagina, and I don't believe she had a penis. So I think... Who knows? No, I, I did a lot of research. I really don't think so. It's a different era. Different era, but you, I don't really don't think so. I learned a lot about Ella. I learned a lot about her, but I, I don't, I, but golly, I don't think she had one. Um, the other thing is uh, I phrase differently than she does. Um, I can't hit four octaves the way she does. I have to be me. I can't force the music out of me to sound like someone else. It has to be part of me. Right. It's the same. We were talking a moment ago about comedians. Uh, Ella is almost uncopyable. I was talking to Marilyn Michaels, the, the best known female impressionist, meaning she's a female who impersonates other females. And she said, I can do anybody's voice except Ella's. There's something in the timbre of her voice that no one is able to get, and, and I can't get it. And I don't know that I'd want to try to get it. I, why be a second-rate somebody else when I can be a first-rate me? Right. So that's what I try to do. I'm, 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 I'm using her arrangements as, as a, a lattice work to be in the same world. And the audiences are telling me, yeah, you're not Ella, and we don't expect you to be, and you're not in drag or anything. But for a little bit, we get the feel of what it must have been like to be in the same room with her and hear her sing these arrangements. She has so many live albums out. I mean, more than any other singer in history. If you want to hear her sing live, there's plenty and plenty and plenty of things to go to. But unfortunately, she's passed. We can't see her anymore. Right. 
except in three or four concert videos that were made through the years. But to be there live, to breathe the same air, I'm kind of bringing this to the people. What if they did, and I'm being serious, this is going to make it seem like I'm making a joke out of this, but I'm not. Like they recently did a uh, hologram uh, of uh, Tupac Shakur, mm -hmm. I think at Coachella. And then the one I was a little more interested in was the rock and roll singer Ronnie James Dio. Uh, they did a hologram where it was his band that he had when he was alive and his hologram. Uh, would Do you think they would do something like that for Ella Fitzgerald? I didn't really like the... I found it a little creepy to, in the Dio case. Would you be open to something like that being done? I'm always open to things that are excellent. If it was done in good taste, if it was done really well, and I'll, I'll give you the only thing that comes to my mind, I've written extensively, extensively about the work of Lucille Ball. And in fact, there's a new book coming out next year from me about her, her career. The new Lucy book. So look for that next year, folks. Well, what was the old, the first book? Can they buy that? The Lucy book is still available. Amazon. But it's expensive because it's out of print. So go on Amazon, look up Jeffrey Mark. G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. And you can friend me on Facebook. I have I have room for friends. But next year, the new Lucy book, and I'll, I'll be back with Earl and tell you. Oh, absolutely. But they've colorized I Love Lucy. They've colorized now, I don't know, eight, nine, ten of the episodes. And I, I'm always asked, what do you think of the colorization? And my answer has to be, there is enough footage of that was taken on the set, silent footage, and uh, films she made of the 1950s. We know what the colors of the sets are. We know the colors of the dresses. We certainly know the color of her hair. And I think if they would colorize the show properly, not like a cartoon, but properly, I think it would open up the show to five more generations. You know, we always thought, baby boomers thought, we'd be watching I Love Lucy forever. Well, it's turning out, except for the Christmas specials, youngsters today aren't watching I Love Lucy. They don't know about it, and they won't watch anything black and white. So See, I, think, I like black and white. I I, to me, I don't even notice I'm watching black and white. It's like, am I having vanilla or chocolate? It's ice cream. To me, it's just ice cream, a different flavor. But there are a lot of people who never grew up with it, don't know about it, don't watch it. But what these people have done, and I, I mean, no denigration of the folks who have been involved with it. I know some of them. But the colorization people have chosen to make her hair this pinkish-orange, the colors of the set are wrong. The colors of the dresses are wrong. Vivian Vance's hair color is wrong. And it's not necessary. We know the right stuff. We don't have to guess. So if it's done properly, which gets back to the, your question about Ella Hologram, if it were to be done really classy, if the hologram, if they chose a moment in Ella's life where she like looked her best, the best dress, the best wig, um, and I assume... She'd be singing because she'd be using her own lips. Right. You know, pick her up around 1964, 65, 66, where she's at the absolute height of her powers. I think that'd be fun. For a song, a whole concert, probably not. But I think, not maybe in my time, but before you kick off, they're going to have hologram concerts that look like 3D to everybody. And I think the technology is coming. 
Well, I mean, the Dio situation was a full concert. Like it was, and he's got one of the greatest uh, voices, and and certainly in the music uh, in the metal world ever. Uh, I agree. Um, it's not metal is not my arena, right? But I can recognize talent, and you're oh, you're and you're correct, extremely talented. Oh, it's the same thing with the singer from a uh, Judas Priest. Yes, uh, Rob Halford. Uh, he still belts it out. It's not the same, but fuck, he's. He's got to be almost 65, 66. I don't expect him to sound like he did when he was 30. No, no, you can't. Tony Bennett is still out there at 90 singing. Barbara Streisand's out there at 75. Do they sound like they did in 1964? No, no. I mean, I get... If you're a singer, your voice reaches an apex. Like, this is the best you're ever going to sound. And if I will, with pardonable pride, I'm there. I am singing today the best I have ever sung in my life. But there will inevitably come a moment when I slide down a little bit. It isn't all of a sudden. It isn't all at once. It's our, our, our voice box is not like a trumpet. Sooner or later, it starts to wear out. It's human. Right. And a comedian isn't quite as sharp anymore. His his timing isn't quite all there anymore. Sure. There are some comedians, the older they get, the funnier they get. Look at George Burns. Look at oh. Jack Benny, who had it right to the end. There are other comedians I see as they're aging. Part of their shtick was being young and cute and full of energy. And when they're not so young and no longer cute and have gained weight and their hair is going and they're, they're not fucked. so happy. Well, they're fucked because uh, they're not funny anymore. They haven't adapted to their own lives. They're still doing pee-pee jokes that were funny when you're 20, but when you're 50 or 60 or 70, really aren't that funny anymore. George Carlin, bless his heart, I, I loved, well, what a wonderful man. What a brilliant comedian. The best ever. The best. Grew as a comedian. He got better and better, and his jokes changed with him. George Burns and Gracie Allen went to radio and were a huge hit. And then after a while, they weren't such a big hit anymore. And like, what are we going to do? Is it over for us? And then he realized, we're still doing boy-girl stuff like we were 22 years old. He said, we're a married couple. We have children. We need to be a married couple. We need to do jokes about husbands and wives. They did that literally by saying, hey, folks, you know what? You've all known we're married. From now on on the show, we're married. We have two kids. Go. Top of the ratings again. Well, it's like uh, I I just saw Kiss in concert, and uh, (laughs) they have a... uh, (laughs) I love Kiss. I mean, I'll go see them till... I've known Gene a long time. But, I mean, they have a song which Gene sings called Christine 16, and it's basically... Gene creeping outside of a high school wanting to fuck this hot 16-year-old. And, you know, back, I think that was on the Love Gun album, so that's 77. Kiss had to be in their 30s maybe at that. Okay, that's a cool song, I guess. At that time, it's a different era now. Couldn't sing that song now. But they still sing it. And Gene's, what, 62 and Paul's same age. It's like, this is, this at is least. completely creepy. You guys are talking about fucking 16-year-old. Motley Crue, same thing. Well, there comes a point for everybody when you have to adjust to your age. How long 
and they're getting away with it. But how long can Mick Jagger and friends continue to run around a stage in skin tight clothing? I mean, Mick's kept himself in good shape. He looks good. But I mean, there's going to come a point where he won't have the energy to do that. It's happening to Bette Midler now. She can't run around the stage like she used to and sing and, and clown like she did. You just There comes a point where you have to adjust to it. And I think it's even more important for a comedian because if you, your comedy has to come out of your DNA. It has to come out of you. And if you're, if the you that you are is now 30 years older, you can't tell the same. Here's a, here's the first joke I wrote for myself as a stand-up comedian. And I wrote it in 1975. However old that made me back then. And I did this joke at the duplex in Manhattan. And I was talking about, now I'm very young looking and I, you know, the great big eyes and I was very, very thin. I had like a 28 inch waist and, uh, I was, there's no mistaking. I am a very young person and I'm talking about not having a father. I, I, I exaggerated my situation that he wasn't there anymore that my mother is trying to teach me about growing up and the birds and the bees. And she keeps stressing, but I need to have protection. I need protection. Well, I kind of sort of figured it out and got one of her Playtex living gloves and cut off the fingers. It didn't do much for my sex life, but I became the first kid on the block with dishpan penis. <laughs> now, when I was 17, <laughs> I just stood there for 30 seconds because they weren't expecting, they weren't expecting me to go sexual at all. And then I did not use any dirty words. Kind of like, wow, he made a dirty joke, but not one dirty word in it. Now, if I told the joke today, you mildly snorted at me because it's completely inappropriate for somebody my age. It's unbelievable. It's wrong for me. My humor has grown through the years. Right. So if I, if I was still doing jokes about getting laid or not having money or about my innocence, no one would laugh at it. Would be, it would be like very, very, very sad if I did that. I don't know if I would. I like, uh, I mean, you know, my humor is almost, I wouldn't say regressing, but I still probably do the jokes that a comic in their mid-20s would do. But I think that's where I get the laughs is people... I still talk about the 80s rock scene. It's like, dude, it's 2018. No one knows who Rat is. But to me, it's funny. So I'm going to do what I think is funny. It has to be funny to you. It's not going to make them laugh if you don't think it's funny. If you were balding and paunchy and ugly, you couldn't pull it off. You know, that you are good looking and you kept yourself in really good shape. I've tried. It's tough. It's yeah. tough for everybody. You've done better than I have. Uh, you look great. I, well, I've lost 83 pounds so far. That's a lot. That's I mean, a lot. I've lost. Because you were, what, three, 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 over three. I was over three. Let's put it that way. So. Now you're 218, if I can throw that out there. Well, it's too late now if it isn't. Yes, I'm 218. <laughs> As of this morning, I'm 218 pounds. Um, but no one is going to uh, want me to wear a singlet on stage. Or, or wear a hockey outfit on stage or any of the other things you've done that you can get away with because you're in such good shape. It's part of your comic persona. It's the sexy nerd thing 
You've made it work for you. That's exactly so, what I'm. Oh, so well. And it works. It continues to work because you still are a sexy nerd. You're just an older sexy nerd. And in fact, being older makes the nerd thing funnier. Well, I think, uh, you know, it's a fine line as a comic. You obviously at some point care what the audience thinks. I mean, at the end of the day, it is what they find funny. So if they don't find it funny, you're going to be stuck doing it in your living room. So it's, there's always that concern for me of, yes, I want to joke about rat and the Vinnie Vincent invasion, which is a group so obscure that people outside of Vinnie Vincent's family don't know who it is. But to me, I think the, or for me, the audience laughs, not necessarily at the material, but at my enthusiasm for telling the joke. Like, it's 2018. You should be doing a joke about uh, Beyonce. Because you have a comic attitude that is all your own. Anything you say can come out funny because you have an attitude. So do I. I, I rarely do prepared material anymore. I riff with the audience. I, I do, I sense what they're about. And of course, I'm singing also, so I can always retreat to a song if I don't get a big laugh. Right. But I don't do a whole lot of, and I'm not specifically a joke teller. I'm a storyteller. And there aren't very many of us left in comedy. You know, nice. I, I, I'm more of a Danny Thomas. I tell a story that has chuckles that gets to a punchline eventually. Uh, or I'm telling a true story that is funny and you're going to enjoy it. But I'm not. You know, the doorbell wings at a whorehouse and the madam opens the door and there's a guy with no arms and no legs. And she laughs at him and says, what do you think you're going to do here? He said, I rang my doorbell, didn't I? <laughs> Those are jokey jokes. And I could tell them, you could tell them, my assistant could tell them and get a laugh with them. I don't do that kind of stuff on stage. I don't tell jokes anymore. I tell stories. And I weave my humor through stories. That's my style. It's what I find funny. Uh, my, my per persona maybe is that older guy who's still kind of youthful, who wears all that sparkly stuff. And you know what? Son of a bitch, it looks good on him. And he knows everything about show business. And he's going to tell it to us and make us laugh about it and laugh with it. And I'm smart. And that comes across too. I don't play dumb. I can't. I've tried. It's like being normal. And we've all seen the meme. You know, I tried being normal once, the worst 10 seconds of my life. I'm not a normal anything. There's nothing about me that is typical, average, normal, nor do I want to be. I'm happy that I'm unique. I'm happy that I'm not like everybody else. I don't try to be like anybody else, but I also don't try not to be. I'm just being the best Jeffrey Mark that I can be on any given day. And that's what I bring to my fans. That's what I bring to any audience I'm in front of, on the radio, on television, in a live venue. I bring me. And hopefully they're having a good time with me. That's why, they, that's why they're tuning in or coming right. to see me. I mean, that's the attitude to have. You're, you know, it's the same for me. It's like, hey, you're with me or you're not. If you're not, that's cool. There's a thousand other comics. I mean, my attitude is whether three people show up or 300 show up, is the check going to clear? Great. Let's have a show. Uh, I'm there. I'm there anyway. Why not have a good time? 
why not enjoy what I'm doing? I don't want to suffer through anything. I want to enjoy what I'm doing. You know, I, for those of you who don't care, my fans care, Jeff. Okay, it took me almost three hours to get here to be with Earl. It was a very, very, very long trip to get here. It was a lot of traffic. Because you're in uh, the desert community. Yeah, I'm out in Rancho Mirage. Well, you know what? So what? We got here, and I'm having a great time with an old friend I haven't seen in a long time. And then I get to sing tonight in front of hopefully a couple of hundred people. I'm having a ball. What's to complain about? That I was in traffic? So fucking what? Right. I get to perform. Lucky me. I mean, I wish everyone had that attitude. No, I, I'm not. In, I'm not in charge of everybody. I'm barely in charge of myself. But I can attitudes. You know, Lucille Ball used to have a little thing on her refrigerator: attitudes and priorities. Is this good for Lucy? I kind of say the same thing up to myself. I can choose to be negative and bring negativity to me, or I can choose to have a positive outlook and bring good things. Rip Taylor told me that. Wonderful, wonderful Rip Taylor. The Dollar Ninety Eight Beauty Show. Rip said, "Bring it to you. Imagine it. Envision it. Bring it to you." What I wear on stage is because of Rip. Rip took me out to dinner before I met you, obviously, and said, "Jeff, you are great on stage, but you dress like an accountant. There's nothing. Dy you're dynamic, and you're dressing boring." And there's a very long story of how the sequence came in my life. But because of Rip, this is how I dress now. And he was right. The very first time I tried it, the audience went crazy. And like, it was a cartoon, light bulb. It's like, right. all right. He was right. The audience found it. They liked it because they liked it. I now have 75 sparkly hats. I don't take out my garbage without a sparkly hat on my head. It works for me. Well, I'm the same way with my leather pants. And I'm happy to wear it. Once I have it on, I'm not even aware I have it on. Other than today, I'm fumbling with the scarf a little bit because it's there. But uh, well, I get a Charles Nelson Riley vibe. <laughs> and I mean that as a compliment because I... He was brilliant. Brilliant at what he did. Doesn't get the credit. Well, that's a whole... I don't, I don't know if you have any fans who want to ask any questions, but... Um, ask away, but be respectful, guys. I know my fans can get a little unruly when you, uh, let's just say, open up the forum to questions, but... You know what? They can't scare me. I've been in show business 45 years. You grew up in the 70s in New York. In the 60s and the 70s in New York. I was born in the 50s. But, I mean, as a single man... Yes. In the... I mean... <laughs> what do you want to hear? <laughs> You're opening up a door. Let's walk through it. I, I'm afraid of nothing. Really and truly, at this point in my life, I have nothing to lose. But, I, I mean, the 70s, uh, I mean, I know the 60s were wild, but seeing that I was born in 68, you know, my first exposure to the wildness of the 70s was, you know, being a Kiss fan, and they were probably the biggest group in the world in, in that middle to late 70s and the biggest non-disco group yes the biggest right. the biggest of, of the kind of music they did the biggest um but even their biggest hit was a disco hit written by the great desmond child yes um but you know they went to studio 54 so and, did I. and, and <laughs> you know uh plato's retreat uh which was a uh you take it from uh tell me i i've never had a guest who was at 
the actual Studio 54. I, I will I will pretend like we didn't talk about this before in our lives together, but but it's a topic we bring up, so let's talk about it. It is possible. I was about to say, it's impossible to tell you what it was like. No, it's not. It's very possible. I'm going to tell you what it was like. We had a cultural phenomenon happen in the 1970s between the assassinations of the 60s and the rioting and Vietnam and civil rights unrest and kids getting killed on campuses. Once President Nixon resigned, it's like our entire country said, leave me alone. We've had 15 years of nothing but heartaches and headaches and problems. We need to have some fun. And actually it was just a repeat of what had happened in the 20s with the Charleston and speakeasies. We'd had World War I and this country wanted to be left the fuck alone. And in the 70s, the same thing happened. Leave us the fuck alone. Don't make us think, don't make us feel, let's dance. And the disco era was born and I loved disco music. I did love it. Like Donna Summer, oh, the I Village People. I knew the Village People. Did I you really? Oh, sure. I would love to talk about them. Sure. Uh, David Hodo and I are still in touch. And uh, David Hodo was the. If you don't know, I'm not going to. Hold on. Uh, let's. Uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm obsessed with the village people. We had uh, Victor Willis was the cop. Yeah. Well, one of them. Uh, Glenn Hughes was the leather man. Rest yeah, in peace. He rest in peace. Buried in his leather outfit. Um, Philippe Rose was the Indian. Native American, yes. Randy West was, I believe, the cowboy. I think David Hodo was the construction worker. Correct. You got it right. There's one more I'm leaving out. Alex Briley was the um, military. Uh, that was, you know, the, the 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 faces changed a little bit as the, as they the, the group got shaken up a couple of times. And unfortunately, there is unrest today legally about who owns the name and who can call themselves what. As far as I am concerned, the people you've just mentioned are the village people. Oh, that's the only village people I recognize. Right. And then, of course, we've spoken privately about Freddie Mercury, uh, who was brilliant, talented, and I will tell you, from a personal standpoint, incredible in bed. Well, but here's the thing. As a kid in the 70s... And You're the going to walk right past that one. Okay, go right ahead. <laughs> well, I love Freddie Mercury. And I had sex with him. You had sex with Freddie Mercury? Yeah. Well, hold on. Well, we're going <laughs> to... See, I didn't hear the last part of that. Let's, well, let's talk about Freddie Mercury. Sure, my pleasure. I really wanted to talk about the village people. You're, you take it wherever you want to go. I'll talk about both. Not only are you the first guest to ever uh, be at Studio 54, but uh, you've had sex with Freddie Mercury. What, well, it kind of goes in with what I want to talk about with the village people, because... Uh, you know, this is uh, in the 70s, if you were gay and a celebrity, you had to kind of keep it under wraps. Yes, but, uh, you but know. the wraps, the press was still looking the other way back then. Because there was no TMZ necessarily. There was no internet. There was no instant anything. If you were caught someplace doing something you shouldn't have, or even something you should have, but didn't want people to know about it, there was no instant. So the best could be that maybe a columnist would write about it in a newspaper. Like Rex Reed. Or Liz Smith or whomever was around at the time. Uh, and 
certainly I've been in the columns enough through the years, you know, it happens, but uh, nobody ever outed me. Nobody ever had to. I never kept myself in. There was no reason to. I was never going to be a leading man. I was never going to play romantic lead. I was going to be a character actor, a singer, a comedian, a writer. I didn't need to be anything other than who I was to succeed. But the people who did need to do other things, and they still do to this day, to some degree, uh, it was easier back then because the, the press was not up your butt looking for material. Because you could ruin a career back then. Today, it's really hard to ruin a career. You can get the worst publicity in the world, and unless you've molested a child, even that's not I like mean, that's not what it what it needs to be anymore. But but in the nineteen seventies, everybody was smoking grass. Everyone was drinking too much, straight or gay, because it really didn't matter that much. I think you're making too much of the gay thing. In New York City, there were, and I'm not exaggerating, 30, 40, and if you include all five boroughs of New York, 50 porn theaters. And whether the theaters were showing men and women having sex on the screen or men and men having sex on the screen or women and women having sex on the screen. It didn't matter what was on the screen. What mattered was what was happening in the audience. And what was happening in the audience was in the same from theater to theater to theater to theater. Men were either masturbating or they were playing with each other or they were blowing each other or they were just out not having sex, sex, sex. You know, you can't not call it sex, sex. Right. Um, and this is pre-AIDS, so it's yes. a bit no, no wilder. Condoms, no condoms, oh. no worries, you know. You catch something, you get a shot. You get crabs, you use a lotion. Oh, well, I'm out of commission for a week. Ha, 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 look at me at a stud. There were, I don't know how many adult bookstores around Manhattan where for five bucks you went through a turnstile and they were showing porn and the same kind of behavior was going on there. Every major bar, now I don't mean a nice cocktail lounge uh, I don't mean the places where they had steam tables of corned beef and cabbage. I'm talking about a pickup bar. Every pickup bar had a back room, an upstairs, a downstairs, a special bathroom, someplace to go to have sex. The New York City subway system had about 230 men's rooms in its various stops. They were all being having sex in. All being having. I'm a writer. All having. They were all. People were fucking. All right, even better. Or sucking, usually it was more oral sex because that's an easier thing not to get caught at. Right. When you're, when you're in the middle of being inside of someone, it's hard to stop that all of a sudden. But everywhere you went, Central Park, Riverside Park, uh, good heavens, I had sex on the dance floor at Studio 54. If you count oral sex as sex. I mean, uh, I'm not Bill Clinton, I do. All right, well. I had sex on the floor of several discos. I, ha I had sex on the subway. I had sex in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on a float. What uh, what era? I mean, what uh, year was that? Oh, golly. I know. I'm assuming it was the 70s. No, 1982. 1982. I remember because I remember who I was dating at the time. The, the two of us got on a float and went at it. Uh, it was wild. It was wild for everybody. The times were very bisexual in New York. I don't know that people are more or they're less or that it changes 
it was the thing to do. It was the flavor of the month. It was a thing to go brag about at dinner. Oh, I was with a guy and a girl. We had a three-way. Look at me. If you were under 45 and didn't weigh 300 pounds or more and weren't disgusting and were recently showered, you could get laid in New York 24 hours a day anytime you wanted. There was no dearth of places to find sex. And I have not even mentioned the sex clubs and the bathhouses that were, for gay and straight people, available and open. You mentioned Plato's Retreat. That was for straight folks. That wasn't for gay people. Well, the only reason I knew about Plato, by the way, I must do a quick shout out to a celebrity in the... Please. Uh, I don't know if he will be embarrassed by me doing this, but uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is Showgirls, the great Greg Travis. Oh, cool. Hi, Greg. Uh, I'm glad you're with us. I'm trying to get him on to talk about showgirls. And the first love, my grade school love, Yvette Altschiller, is... This is what I love about doing Facebook Live. I, your first love from your grade school is in the chat room along with one of your favorite actors. Well, Greg, I can tell you sitting here, trust him. He asks good questions. He's not going to embarrass you. And, not at all. Uh, you're going to be really happy you're here with him on the, on the, on the couch. When I walked in here, it's like, oh, it's the couch. I've seen it. <laughs> Everyone yeah. is like, well, Showgirls was such a, uh, it kind of had a 70s throwback, you know, uh, it was a very campy movie. Uh, and I'll, I'll just never forget seeing it in Westwood. It was packed because uh, Joe Esterhouse had, it was like, uh, I think the first big movie he had written after uh, Basic Instinct. Yes. So there was a lot of buzz around it, a lot of controversy because of the nudity. And uh, so uh, I, I will tell all of my friends and any friends of uh, our host here that uh, come on the show. Trust him. He's trustworthy. I wouldn't be here otherwise. Believe me, I would not have driven in three I'm, hours. I'm doing a concert tonight. I should be saving my voice. I'm doing this because I love this guy and he's trustworthy. So Greg, do his show. And Yvette, we never forget our first love. So no. please know for the rest of this man's life, you say the word of vet to him, and he's going to have a lovely smile on his face. Always. Uh, Always. She was my uh, Bel Air neighbor, and, uh, you know, we'll leave it at that. She's married with a lovely family. Oh, yeah. One thing has nothing to do with the other. One, one is a lovely memory that we cherish. Well, I think you always remember your first love. I think you remember the first person you had sex with. Uh but let's get back to the seven. We got a little sidetracked there. That's all right. And that there was one question that I'm. I'll go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, it, it's who, who, uh, what celebrity that you've been with? You don't have to admit. Well, I guess they want the name. But Ask the question. I don't. Who had the biggest wanker? He's from the UK. Uh, uh, be, not because you're from the UK, dear friend in the UK. And I hope you buy the book over there. Please do. I hope you're an Ella fan. But um, Freddie had a huge dick. He he was he was packing. <laughs> he was he was everything you would expect Freddie Mercury to be. Um, there's only one other person who is still alive, who is elderly, and would uh, probably not like me discussing. Oh, talk. We don't have to that. mention names. So there's there's one elderly celebrity who is extraordinarily blessed. And then because he's gone, I will say I never had sex with Milton Berle, but he did take me to the men's room of the Friars Club and pull it out and show it to me. And 
I was mighty impressed. Milton Soft was about as big as Freddie Hard. Well, because there's that very famous story. Uh, and it's I, true. I know where you're going. Milton was, I think, in the bathroom at the Friars Club and uh, another drunk. May, may I May I do it? For Please you? do. Because I heard it from the horse's mouth and I didn't make any pun by horse. But Literally. The Friars Club had a steam room and Milton was drafted in a towel coming out of the steam room. Now, if you were a friar, Milton knew every friar personally. He made it his business to know every single person in the club, to know your career, to know who you are, because it was his private domain. And his best, best friend and head writer and the guy who wrote the, the theme song to the Milton Berle show, Buddy Arnold was with Milton everywhere Milton went. They were joined at the hip. They weren't lovers, but they were just best, best, best. They were just soulmates. And they're coming out of the steam room together. And a guy comes over and says, hey, Burl, I hear you got a big one. hundred bucks, mine is bigger than yours. Now, as I just said, if Milton knew you, it was almost a rite of passage. It was like, I think you're cool, zip, plop. But if he didn't know you, he didn't even <laughs> want you to talk to him at the Friars Club. He wanted his privacy. It's a private club. This is not a public performing place. So the guy persisted and Milton said, look, fella, you're obviously somebody's guest or I know who you are. Go find the guy who brought you. Please enjoy our club, but leave me alone. Right. Come on, bro. hundred bucks. Put up or shut up. Put up or shut up. And Buddy turns to Milton and says, oh, Milton, just pull out enough to win. And it's true, and it really happened, and Buddy Arnold told me the story. And Milton shook his head and said, yes, it really happened. I mean, Milton Burrow was just, you know, a lot of people don't know this. He was in the first two rat videos <laughs> because his nephew Marshall was rat's manager. Yes. So that's a lot of people often wonder, why did Milton Burrow, how did he end up in two rat videos? But, and also because he was Milton Burrow. He was just the coolest guy he, I, 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 I would hope to have 50% of the show business knowledge Milton Berle knew. Every theater, every act in vaudeville, every television show, that's how we bonded. Because I was taken to the Friars Club by Jack Carter to have lunch with Milton. I wasn't a, a member of the Friars Club yet. And Jack had warned me that, you know, Milton's not the warmest person in the world. He's going to like you. He's going to not like you. It's going to go one way or the other, and there's not much you can do about it. And we were introduced, and I said to him, so on March 22nd in 1949 on the Texaco Star Theater, you had Ethel Merman on, and it was her first television appearance, and she had just closed the week before in Any Get Your Gun, and you guys did a sketch about a man driving a car, and he stopped me, and he said, how the hell do you know about that? I said, oh, I have a copy of the tape. He said, I don't have a copy of the tape. I said, you do now. And I described the sketch to him. Milton upstaged everybody. That was his shtick, physically upstaging you. And I can't get up and show you because you'd lose the frame of uh, Facebook. But he would push you here so that you would turn this way, facing upstage where the audience is, is downstage so that he'd get all the people looking at him. Well, you don't upstage Ethel Merman. And they were going to do this sketch where they were wearing these great big car coats, 
from the, like the 1910s. And Merman put little itty bitty skinny skinny stick pins sticking up on her shoulder. So that if he went to grab her to push her, he'd get stuck. Right. And he did. And he let her have it. Three Stooges style. He poked her in the eyes like this. He gave her one of these under the chin. He took her hat off. He twisted her around. And they're singing a song by this point. And he's going on and on and on and on. And the song has ended and he's going on. And she shoves him and says, it's over already. Forget it. Good evening, friends. And it stopped the show. And Milton said to me, you know things. Now I'm going to tell you some real stories. And that's what started our friendship. Because I knew what I was talking about. Right. I came prepared not to do battle, but to be able to have... That's, that's another thing, young people in show business. They know nothing about the business of the business and nothing about the history of the business. It's that when they meet someone, maybe not even someone on the level of Milton Berle, but on the level of Earl Skakel or Jeffrey Mark... If you know who we are and what we've done and can say something intelligent, gee whiz, maybe I'll spend 10 minutes with you trying to help you. Well, that's what I try and do. Like, uh, you know, because I was on that show Roast Battle on Comedy Central and and it's a great show. It's certainly done a lot for me, but I try and turn people on to like Foster Brooks and and because that's how I started to learn how to roast was Dean Martin roast, but I really honed in on Foster Brooks just just i mean his five minute roast of don rickles is to me there's no other roast set that it's just there's that and then everything else and people i showed it to my one friend she's in her early 20s she's like i don't get it <laughs> i'm like how could you not get this and it's no profanity no he's doing basic television well he's basically doing five minutes about fucking don rickles wife but it was just innuendo and and like and he's doing it as if he's inebriated which adds to all the humor yeah which he did not drink no uh, he couldn't so and she was just like yeah i don't get it the funniest roast i've ever heard i was too young to have been there was one of the many times the friars roasted milton Berle, and pat buttram uh uh green acres from green acres he had that kind of delivery. Mr. Haney. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> he started it on Milton Berle. Milton Berle's fucking this girl in Las Vegas. Of course, he was in Van Nuys at the time. <laughs> Milton Berle can't have safe sex. They run out of missile silos. One dick joke right. after another. But brilliantly done. Brilliant because it's Milton. Right. Brilliant because there were incredible dick jokes and brilliant because of his delivery. Because Pat could make almost anything funny. It's like a dim-witted Southern and he's anything but dumb. Uh, but like... But that whiny, sing-songy voice, you, you, you're almost on the edge of your seat. How is this sentence going to end? Right. And even if it's not funny, you laugh just because he's finished. Right, right. Which, if you have an incredible delivery, which is something else comedians don't understand anymore. Blah, 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 blah. Hey, dudes, how you doing? Blah, 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 blah. 
really no delivery, no pauses, no uh, how to get from this topic to that topic. If one more comedian comes out and bellates a bottle of water on stage, really, you can't be that thirsty for five minutes. Keep the water backstage. Come out and do your act and go get a glass of water. Right. It's not important. If you do that, I apologize. But No, I drink an energy drink right before I go on stage to get that instant burst of... Uh a jolt of energy even though i don't move on stage i like to be a uh, almost a, a contrast and i'm so jacked up on caffeine but i'm not moving so you know but again you are so brilliant in what you do because you have the delivery also it's all you have all of it you have the costume you have the comedy attitude can you talk to netflix or comedy central since i'm uh, protected with them <laughs> I will do my best. It's a tough business. I don't understand it, but let's get back to fucking... Uh, well, before we do, let's okay. talk about the Palm Springs International Comedy Festival upon which I am on the board of directors. So comics, let me... Before Jeffrey uh, talks about this, don't be bugging him on Facebook. Uh, you know, it, it's... Uh, you know, there's the Montreal Comedy Festival. There's uh, Skank Fest in New York, which I was very happy to be a part of. This is a comedy festival on the West Coast. You all can drive to Palm Springs. Take it, Jeffrey. Well, and it's a comedy festival across the board. Stand-up comedians, com comedy television shows, sketch comedy, comedy films, and there'll be an award show as well. So there'll be an award show honoring the best of the best and then a weekend of showings and comedians doing their thing. So no, every single one of you can't be in it, but some of you can. And I don't mind if you contact me as long as you don't mind that I say no or that I don't know or I'm not sure what I can do and how large is your penis. Well, so as long as you understand those are going to be the questions or at least some of the answers, you're free to contact me. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful thing it's a necessary thing, and the desert is once again becoming the place where everyone is going to play. The desert is getting hot, and I don't mean hot and heat. I mean it's the hot place to go again. It used to be, and then for a long time there it wasn't, and now it is the cool place to go. Hot, cool. It's the in place to be now. Well, I've often wondered why uh, there wasn't like a, a comedy store or an improv there is an improv out in India that Bud has started at the Fantasy Springs Casino. And in fact, I've told you, I'd love to get you booked there. I'm in. Because I don't even have to hear the date. I'll do it. Because they're only open during season. Now, that is part of the reason why there isn't a comedy club there. Because from mid-May until the end of September, the city empties out. And uh, most of the nightclubs either close completely or they're open one day a week. Uh, they make their money in season that pays for their being dark out of season. Some of the restaurants go dark over the summer. So it is a city that is not open all year round necessarily. More and more it is, but historically, financially, very, very different. That's, what, that's why the one place is located in a casino because the casinos thrive no matter what. They're their own little islands and people go there and just, lose their minds and their money and well i wasn't going to say that because i'd like to get booked at the casino but um you go there to play and it's becoming about as popular as vegas is not as a place to be so let's look out in september right around my birthday in the middle of september 
for the uh, Palm Springs International Comedy Festival. And I'd be happy to hear from friends out there. So, Well, that works out because yeah. you have uh, Skank Fest, which is in New York, is in early July. You have Montreal Comedy Festival, which is uh, or the, it's just for laughs now. That's in the tail end of July. So September's a good time for... Uh, and, you know, it's a lo- essentially a local gig. Uh, you know, Palm Springs was a two-out. But you'll get international notice. You'll get lots of good FaceTime. If you get booked or if we salute you, uh, everyone's going to know it. Yeah, and it, it's good to be, you know, there's a whole, I think people uh, see something like Entourage on HBO and they're like, oh, the only people who can help you in this business are, you know, 30-year-old uh, agents at ICM or William Morris. It's also, Bud Freeman can still help you. Yes. <laughs> uh, even though he doesn't, own all the improvs he could it's bud freeman you idiot he so doesn't own them but he influences them and he's a dear friend and a brilliant man and uh i am honored to know him so we, we cannot underestimate his influence on the comedy world or anything else Bud is a genius oh it's uh, i mean uh, i mean the mitzi shore bud freeman uh, jamie masada it, it, it's uh we're even going to forgive Mitzi for Polly, you know. So, but anyway, folks. Polly's good to me. Polly's good to me. So, uh, but you know, it's going to be a sad day when those uh, that generation passes because that's the generation I grew up with. Yes. Uh, I grew up watching Evening at the Improv. You know, back when they're really, you know, now it's you have Comedy Central, you have Netflix, you have probably seven late night talk shows that have stand up in some form. You know, so it's a little easier to get on TV. But back then, it was The Tonight Show or Evening at the Improv. That's it. And then HBO came. And it's an inverse proportion of getting goods because all the comedy clubs that were around back then, and they've been saying this since the turn of the 20th century, they were places to be bad. They were places to go and Find out what your comedy voice was and try out jokes and routines. And does le- do leather pants work or do I need to walk out in a jock strap? Should I, wear, should I be wearing running shorts or an Armani suit? What's my point of view? You got a chance to try all that stuff before you got to the night show, before you got to the ending at the improv. Now the clubs are drying up. You have to be excellent almost out of the get-go unless you want to work at 3 o'clock in the morning for three and a half minutes. I've done that. You've done that. You've put your time in. That I have. I don't I don't like to brag or pat myself on the back, but I will say I've put the fucking time in. You have, and haven't we all? Yeah, uh, you have. I mean, uh, performing since 8, you know, uh, I, that's the only thing I wish the, uh, some of the younger comics would appreciate is it's not just put out a youtube video or a vine video or a periscope video or a the, an instagram live video and you're famous which now you can be you can and you can't and let, let's let's debunk that if we have time because i don't we have you i know you have to get going to your gig i think we have about uh we've got about maybe 15 minutes but i'd like to get back to the fucking freddie mercury thing sure but you know it's so, your car baby drive why don't we get into that for a second and then we'll wrap up with you know your take on the future of this business because sure. you're someone who's 67 i mean you five six decades yeah. we'll get to david hodo too 
<laughs> David the, is brilliant. The construction worker from the village people. Because here's here's my thing on the village people. And really Freddie Mercury, too. And really, I'll, I'll go even into the acting world. Uh, the dad from the Brady Bunch, uh, Paul Len, Jim J. Bullock. I had no idea these guys were gay. Zero. I mean, like, I look at the village people poster i had in my bedroom i had two posters village people and kiss and i look now i go oh yeah i i, I guess the leather guy i guess he was gay and i i mean david odo and and maybe he influenced you a little bit too well definitely from the performance you know I, but they had the village people i think never got credit for uh Gior, giorgio moroder am i saying that correctly he he was the 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 brains behind them. You can be brains all you want, but if the guys who are going out there night after night don't have it, uh, you know, they were the talent. Let's remember Millie Vanilli. You know, you can you can manufacture stuff all you want. David Hodo, and I hope David's listening. And we're he probably isn't, but I hope he is. I hope he is. I'll, I'll let him know to look at this later. Oh my God, I would, David. If you're out there, when Jeffrey tells you about this. To have an OG member of the Village People on my couch would be beyond humbling. Well, David, I will tell you, this guy's a good, he's, he's the real thing. If you want to do it, I, I, I highly recommend it. David is, I keep telling David he needs to write a book about his take on what's happening in the world. He writes really, really well. He's very, very intelligent. He's very, um, my, 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 yeah, my, my assistant is here. Guys, we have to pause this for a second so on facebook live uh i'll keep talking i'm just gonna take the phone call guys uh, no wait okay. well i don't know if that'll be good tv for facebook so we're gonna cut the facebook live right now okay. jeffrey all right whatever you where, want where can people find your ella fitzgerald book amazon.com is the best place to find it or come to glendale library tonight all right, guys, this is Jeffrey Mark, Facebook Live. We're still going to be doing the podcast, but Facebook Live is done. I love you all. Share and retweet and buy Jeffrey's book, not only on Ella Fitzgerald, but also on... Uh... Lucille Ball. All right, guys, love you. All right, we are done on Facebook okay. Live. But I will tell you, we're still, we're still doing a podcast. And we here. will... Okay, we're back. We had to take a little halftime break for uh, Facebook Live to wind down and then... Uh, Back with Jeffrey Mark, inappropriate Earl. Jeffrey's got a gig in Glendale. So we got about I'm about 10 more minutes. We're going to talk a little bit of Freddie Mercury, David Hodo from the Village People. Um, take it away, Jeffrey. Well, you wanted to talk about fucking. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, Freddie Mercury's probably house. the greatest singer of all time, in my opinion. Well, he's an incredible talent. He's greatly missed. Um... And I was fortunate enough to have sex with him. Uh, How did that, I mean, did you meet him at Studio 54 or? Uh, the place I met Freddie at wasn't even that classy. Um, we were talking earlier uh, about New York City in the 1970s, and this is in the 1970s. And I'm probably maybe 18. I don't think I was any older than 19. And there were places where men got together to anonymously have fun. And I drunkenly, stonedly, perhaps cokedly, walked into one of them and recognized him. And I guess I was his type, a strawberry blonde, a skinny 
I know it's hard to think I was skinny, but I was, my, my, my assistant is here. My assistant is uh, lithe, but muscular and has about a 28 or 29 inch waist. And I was built like him at this age. Okay. Because I was a dancer. So I had these thick, muscular dancer's legs and a perfect butt and a swimmer's upper body. And I guess Freddie liked it. And um, we ended up together that evening. At that bar? Like in the bar or just? Oh, you're again assuming this is way too nice of a place. There was no bar. This was just a place. So this is like one of those places portrayed in the Al Pacino movie, Cruising. Yes. yes. In fact, it was one of the places that were portrayed. In, in fact, uh, that was almost a problem for us because, um, well, for me anyway, because I was there in one of those places when they were filming. And uh, I did not. I, I, I was, un, you know, I, I, there's, there, there is a Forrest Gump thing about me. Like I was there when John Lennon was shot. There's this thing where I'm just at places in history at the right moment or the wrong moment, and I happen to be there. But there, there is a, a at least at least two porn films. I'm not doing porn. I'm not naked. Right. But I'm in the films because I'm there while they're filming it. Because okay. Cruising was a very dark movie, let's just say, about the gay... Cruising was... Underbelly a, of New York City. Cruising was a homophobic piece of shit. Okay, William Friedkin. That uh, took what was going on, which is not to say there isn't room to criticize gay life. Don't get me wrong. I have my own criticisms. But the, when, you, when, you, when you start off to make a film that is supposed to be kind of sort of a docudrama, but you've already decided before you get started what the point of view is and how it's going to end up. It is no longer a docu-anything. It is your homophobia set to music. And I did not like how it came out. Uh, and the gay community was very unhappy with the film. I just happened to be there while they were doing one of the scenes, and I did not want to be in it. So I managed to extricate myself from the final copy because I did not want any part of it. I mean, full disclosure, I love the movie... Uh for the acting like i i really al pacino is an incredible actor and one of the early appearances of someone who just recently passed away the the great powers booth who uh was the handkerchief salesman yes. in that one scene yes and uh, a very nice man by the way oh did you know powers booth it bums I... me out when some uh younger star dies and it's we talk about like anna nicole smith i i loved her she was great but we still talk about her he dies no one no one mentions now, it her show i absolutely turned down oh okay now, that was a show where we want you to no i will not be involved with that. what do they want you to be like her gay sidekick or something they were doing an episode at a store and they wanted her to run into me not not physically run into me, right. just, just oh, oh hey yeah and have a conversation and be a part of the, the, the hijinks. And I said, you know, yeah, it might make me more famous than I am, but I don't want to be known for that. So right. I said, no, no, thank you. I'd, there are people in the world who will do anything to be famous. I see I, it every day. I like being famous. I enjoy it. I enjoy whatever fame I have. I enjoy it. I am not a star. I guess at this point, after 45 years, I'm a celebrity, but I'm not a star. And I'm very happy with the level I have. And whatever celebrity I've had, I 
really enjoy it. I love meeting people, the fans. I love, I love being part of the business, but not that part of the business. I just, I don't do sleaze. I don't do bad TV. I could have made a fortune producing bad TV for cable, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't write purposely bad scripts when I could have taken three more days and written something wonderful, Right. but they wanted it fast, or they wanted it sleazy, or what awful thing can we say about these celebrities? I said, no, I'm not doing that. That's just who I am. No, it's now, just I, the- I'm happy to talk about having anonymous sex in the 1970s with all kinds of people. I don't polish a halo, but in my career, I've tried to bring anybody who cares about my work, my best work, not right. my worst work. Well, I think uh, making love to Freddie Mercury is pretty cool. I mean, again, you're assuming a lot, but uh, it was more the other way around. Well, you know, we two tops don't make a bottom, as they say in West Hollywood. <laughs> now, we can't mention names. So you you told me one name off the air, uh, you know, because I'm a big pro wrestling fan, and I don't yes. think that uh, of all the forms of entertainment that I watch, action movies or uh, you know, music, uh, you know, certainly. Let's tease them with this. I had sex with someone whose wrestling character had a military bearing. And we'll just, it could be Colonel Mustafa from AWA, could be Colonel De Beers, you know, maybe it's none of them. But like, that goes into the wildness of the 70s in New York City. You had pro, you were intermingling with rock stars, pro wrestlers, I'm and assuming. Porn stars. Porn. There was one gym on, I believe it was 56th Street between 6th Avenue and 7th Avenue. And the wrestlers all went there. And then the porn guys and the, and the uh, uh, rock people went there because it was a place you could go. You know, now there's gyms, you, they're all over the world and you join one place and- Like an equinox. Anywhere you go, it's there. In those days, unless you're going to the YMCA, you had to belong to that specific gym. This gym- catered to people who who traveled. So if you came to New York, it was easy to be a part of it, get whatever you needed, and get the hell out. Right. And then you went back to it the next time you were in New York City. So all of these people intermingled, and they all understood. They each served a different audience, or sometimes they overlapped. I'm sure some of the same people who watched porn also watched wrestling or whatever. Uh, they talked among themselves. They commiserated about life on the road. They were they were human beings. And they were all playing characters. Whether you're an actor in porn or you're a wrestler, you're an actor. Except in, in, in wrestling, you have to be in much, much, much better shape and also be an athlete on top of being an actor. But that's also even a uh, profession where we, we talk about like the dad from the Brady Bunch kind of not having to say I'm gay because it would ruin the image of the all-american family at that time but you know i would say um the pro wrestling fan base can uh you might make an argument it could be slightly homophobic uh you know i remember when um maybe about 10 years ago they had a storyline that actually got um national publicity because the two guys were getting married it's billy and chuck it was a gay marriage and they went on Good Morning America in character. But at the time, it was uh, the storyline was still, hey, these guys are really gay. 
And so the the big pay-per-view in wrestling, they were going to get married. And right as they're about to exchange the wedding rings, the one guy's like, hey, uh, this is going too far. We're not gay. And the whole crowd erupted. As if they were really gay, it would have been the worst thing on earth. Uh, so to be a pro wrestler and have gay yearnings had to be tough. It had to be, but I will tell you, without mentioning any names, absolutely, that I'd say the 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 wrestlers that you knew and loved from the seventies and eighties, because that's the era where I knew them personally. Half of them were gay. Well, there's uh, the famous, uh, you know, my favorite pro wrestler of all time, uh, rest in peace, the uh, the great Ultimate Warrior. Uh, there was always rumors that he was. Um, Let's just say when he was first starting out, had to do things that, uh, you know, might have pointed him into a gay lifestyle. Nothing wrong with that. No, no. And and I, I, I almost find the subject boring because I don't know why we care about everybody else's sex life. I'm much more interested in my own than in somebody else's. And I don't think that people who are famous necessarily have any better of a sex life or different a sex life than we do. The only thing they have different than us is money to pay for whatever they want. Well, that I, makes a difference. Well, I think it's, uh, especially back then when there was no TMZ, there was no uh, radar online, just like, I guess, TMZ's competitor. Uh, there was no page six. Um, that it. I don't think the American public liked they wanted the truth. They wanted, oh, JFK's cheating on Jackie O. And then that almost made them more curious to look in, oh, well, who's that girl who walked into the White House? Okay. Or, oh. But now we have a White House where nobody seems to care anymore what anyone's doing. I mean, I don't know how this guy survives. Uh, the, the news doesn't have news in it anymore. So uh, to get back to your subjects, we, we, we need to leave here in about four five, minutes. Yeah, five minutes. We got five, five minutes. to. Five I minutes. mean, this we could go on for hours. And I mean, you know what? I'll come back and we'll talk about, we'll do two hours of sex. It's just fine with me. Two hours on Freddie Mercury alone. Well, I did two hours on Freddie Mercury alone. Or he did on you. Who knows? <laughs> we won't get into we that. We went back and forth. It's all right. Um, well, I'm sure you guys experienced And that. I'm very lucky because I don't know when he became HIV positive and I had unprotected sex with him. And I didn't get it. I'm a lucky guy. My drug dealer, I am I am April 1st. Whenever you're hearing this, we're talking about April 1st of 2018. So we are a few days away from that as we record this. 29 years clean and sober. That's awesome. Thank you, sir. But before that, I was a wild man. And I, safe sex, what's that? So uh, somehow I managed to avoid getting HIV. Not because I'm a better guy, not because I'm a nicer guy. Um, the only thing I had going in my favor is that my drug dealer, which is why I mentioned being clean and sober, when they started counting bodies, he was number three. Number three. Uh, in 19, I believe. In 19, New York City? In New York City. In 1980, I believe. Before there was a term AIDS, before HIV was the name given to the virus, they didn't know what it was yet. And we happened to go to the same doctor. And he sent out a letter saying, hey, three people have died from this thing. We think it's a virus. That much they suspected right from the beginning. But if you get these symptoms, 
Don't even make an appointment. Just come to the office immediately. We're sure this is the last death. Well, the doctor was gone too. Uh, it was an awful thing to live through. It was the worst thing to die through. Uh, a huge part of my memoirs is going to be about living through those years. And what I did, because we didn't, you don't even know this about me, Dr. Matilda Krim, who started what is now the biggest AIDS research thing in the world, came to me for help when she couldn't afford the price of a cup of coffee. And to the best of my knowledge, I did the first three fundraisers where entertainers performed to raise money to do research for AIDS. Even in my drunken, stoned out state, I realized we're all gonna drop dead if someone doesn't do something. Right. When she died about a month and a half ago, she had about a billion with a B like for a boy, a billion and a half dollars at her fingertips with which to do research. She literally could not buy me the coffee the first time we met. Right. So if I have, have given anything to the gay world, I helped her to start AMFAR and, and help all the people who are now living with the disease and having lives that are worthwhile. Uh, I'm very proud of it. I had no idea how it was gonna turn out. I had no idea my tiny contribution would grow so big, but myself and about a hundred other men got together and helped. And of that, I am very, very proud. Well, we'll leave it at that. One more time, Jeffrey, where can people find you on social media? Find me on Facebook. I'll spell it for you. G-E-O-F like and Frank, F like and Frank, R-E-Y, last name M-A-R-K. Find me on Facebook and please buy the book, Ella, a biography of the legendary Ella Fitzgerald at amazon.com. You can get the regular size or the giant size. The giant size has two wonderful <laughs> CDs of her entire career that you cannot buy anywhere else. And Earl Skakel, I am so proud of you and so happy to be here. Well, Jeffrey, it's been an honor. It's been a long time coming. You'll come back for more, as the rat song would say, whenever you want. And uh, whenever, guys- Whenever you have me. Please buy Jeffrey's book. Uh, just support my friends. That's why I have them on. So you become fans of theirs. Jeffrey Mark's the best. Inappropriate Earl, SoundCloud and iTunes. Leave a review. And uh, next week, we got a couple guests coming, comics, musicians, back to the same drill. But support Jeffrey Mark. I mean, come on. Freddie Mercury. I mean, I can't get sued, can I? No, sir. All right. We'll leave it at that. Inappropriate Earl. Goodbye. Goodbye.